Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Friday, May the 14th, 2021. We are pre-taping a show to be aired this Monday, May the 17th, 2021, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. At KOOP.org, many of the shows are archived at PedroGatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 56th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Pedro Gatos and bringing light into darkness Monday news and analysis since we began broadcasting on Co-op Radio in 2002. Has been investigating and seeking to present genuine, truth-seeking perspectives of how U.S. foreign policy impacts majority populations around the world. We also seek to identify other human-generated behaviors that either create or aggravate human misery outcomes in the world that by definition are preventable and therefore reversible. Over the past 18 years, our record speaks to the veracity of our reporting. The impact of U.S. foreign policy in the world, on the world, population, is unrivaled in reach and in impact. Our presumption is that the U.S. population is a compassionate and social justice-driven people, that if we know the truth of the matter, we support policies that promote the most fair and democratic outcomes. The problem is, too often, we are misinformed by our government and our mainstream media. Therefore, this show is dedicated to critically evaluating all information before accepting it as believable and as worthy for becoming the foundation for building our worldview understandings upon. Consistent with Dr. King's views on foreign policy, our foreign policy reveals the character of our nation. However, it is presented to the U.S. public as how we would like it to be instead of reflecting and reporting the objective reality of what transpires in the countries we have such a large determinant impact upon. Tonight, we ask you to judge your perceptions of U.S. foreign policy and its outcomes regarding white supremacy and neo-Nazism in Ukraine with this presentation of disturbing but evidence-based events and history that our guest, along with our host of Bringing Light into Darkness, bring to you for consideration. I urge you to listen to the whole show as it unfolds, and we guarantee through investigative reporting its veracity in content, a content that challenges our most common perceptions. We encourage your feedback and critical discourse. Enjoy. Well, welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis. We are broadcasting from the heart of Texas and Austin. Today is Friday, May the 14th, 2021. 
We are pre-recording a show that we will be broadcasting this Monday night, uh, May the 17th, 2021, at 6 to 7 p.m. on your premier community station of the nation, 91.7 KOOP. I am very excited. We are blessed to have with us an author and expert on far-right movements, particularly in the European theater, and that would be Lev Galinkin. I'll more formally introduce you, Lev, in just a second, but first, welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness. Thank you so much. It sounds like you've done a whole lot of talking to your listeners about this issue, and I think it's fantastic. I think as dark as it is, uh, I think it's important that we know about it. So it sounds like you've been doing the Lord's work on that. Well, thank you for that. And I just wanted to share that Mr. Galinkin, he's an author. He's also a writer on the subject that we'll be talking about tonight. I, I actually wanted to share that you're also a refugee from the eastern Ukrainian city of Kharkov, now called uh-huh. now called Kharkiv. Please correct my pronunciation if I'm. But that but you came to the states in what 1990? Is that right? Yeah, I came here. So yeah, we came here as refugees from Soviet anti-Semitism. So we were taking in my family and I, it was five of us, and I was just a kid back then. Mm-hmm. But, and keep in mind, of course, it's the, the experience we had as refugees was refugee deluxe. It was, it was nothing like what some of, the, some of the other people experienced, but it was still enough to give me an appreciation of, of kind of, of what it's like to be a pawn when, between different various countries. And it's, uh, it also gave me an appreciation for America, too, which is why I've been writing a lot about, about the various ways that uh, white supremacy affects us. Very good. And Lev Galinkin's writings on the Ukraine crisis, also on Russia, the far right, and immigrant and refugee identity has, has appeared throughout our country and throughout many mainstream and very powerful media entities, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, CNN, the Boston Globe, Politico, uh, Europe, Time Magazine, online, and among other venues, including NPR, MSNBC, and we can go on. I just wanted to share that I came across your piece in the Nation magazine just last week that we'll be trying to zero in on a little bit and have you speak more to. But before we do, I wanted to back up and frame our discussion tonight around the Ukraine history, the recent history, that is, and I'll let you do the more deep-diving history, which is very important to understand these circumstances and these traditions and the reemergence of some of these very dangerous political tendencies. But in 2014, in February, there was a, a government in Ukraine that got cooed out of power. It was led by President Yanukovych, who had been actually voted in by landslide majorities in south and eastern Ukraine, the Donetsk and Lugansk areas where separatists emerged in response to the later coup of 2014, as well as Crimea, all had landslide majorities for Yanukovych in the 2010 election that brought President Yanukovych to power. Meanwhile, the Donbass and the Donetsk areas, these are what later became the separatist areas, over 75 to 80%, according to the polling that we've cited on this show before, had actually voted for this guy. Well, while, you know, he certainly wasn't absent of corruption, it was an election that he won in, uh, in, in landslide amounts in these very areas. 
Meanwhile, the history of the Ukraine separatist uprising is presented to the U.S. public completely devoid of this important historical fact, namely that the president that was removed from power through a coup was a president that was supported by 75 to 80 percent of the people that lived in those regions. And in the, in the events that led up to that coup, many years transpired ahead of the coup in which there was all sorts of monies being poured into Ukraine. It's something we talk about on the show quite a bit, that when we think about the sovereignty of a nation, it's hard to remain sovereign if you have $5 billion being poured in by one interest. And of course, I'm sure there's other interests too, but $5 billion, that's what Janet Newland had spoke to in a speech about the amounts of monies that were going into Ukraine as it was being wrestled between the East and the West, so to speak. And during this process, it looked like the Ukrainian government led by Yanukovych was going to move towards the West and the NATO nations and the EU and accept some economic austerity conditions that would come with that loan. But then the Russian government offered them apparently a better package of economic incentives and those things. And that's what they decided to do. And when they made that decision, it triggered a series of events in which our own embassy ambassador, George Pyatt, in a taped phone call with one of his bosses under Secretary of State Victoria Nuland, revealed the meddling by U.S. interests into the sovereign affairs of Ukraine. So it was very clear that this was from the content, we won't get into the content of that phone call, but that they really wanted certain people in power that did eventually come to power uh, in this coup. And it was clearly, according to many independent sources, a coup. For instance, Stratfor, which is known as the Shadow CIA private entity, in a December 19th, 2014 interview in the Russian magazine Commerçant, the founder and CEO of Stratford, George Friedman, said the overthrow of Ukraine's President Viktor Yanukovych that occurred on February 22nd, 2014, quote, it really was the most blatant coup in history, end quote. And the result of that coup from the first time since 1933, the followers of, of movements that adored and sang the praise of Adolf Hitler came to rise in this government into cabinet positions. And I wanted to just set the stage and document with absolute clarity by mentioning a few names because I think it's important. Number one, in 2014, the cabinet positions were awarded to two main neo-Nazi fascist parties in the Ukraine the uh, Social National Party of Ukraine, later renamed Svoboda Party, and the Right Sector Party. There was fully eight cabinet positions in the post-coup government that went to folks that were clearly connected to a history of neo-Nazism. Ali Tiyanabuk, he was a, a Svoboda Party head. Uh, Andrei Peterby, he was mm-hmm, a co- mm-hmm. fa- co-founder of the neo-Nazi Social National Party of Ukraine, later renamed Svoboda. They were both followers of the Ukrainian Nazi Stepan Bandera, who we'll ask you to talk about here in just a minute, who collaborated in World War II, mass murder of of Jews and Poles. The other individuals I just wanted to mention, just to get them on the record, we've talked about this in the past, but it's really important, is uh, Ihor Tenyuk, T-E-N-Y-U-K-H, who was the interim defense minister and a member of the Svoboda Political Council, 
Well, we mentioned Parabe. There's also Dimitro Yarosh, deputy head of the mm-hmm. Na- National Security Council. I mean, this is like the police. The right sector, yep. Yeah, Oli Mahitsky, the Svoboda member of parliament and prosecutor general, another very important post-coup position that helped engineer the repression in the East. Also, Alexandra Sich, S-Y-C-H, Svoboda Party parliamentarian and one of the chief party ideologists, a prime mm-hmm. minister of, of, of economic affairs, and, and Siri Kevitt, a leading member of Svoboda uh, and headed the education ministry. And then finally, the Ministry of Ecology, a sub- former Svoboda envoy to other European fascist parties throughout Europe, Andre Moknik was also, and then finally the number eight was these agro-oligarch and a member of Svoboda, Ihor and Shveika. So anyhow, with that background, it was shocking to me, Lev, that none of this was really being covered by MSNBC, mm-hmm, by Fox mm-hmm. News, by anybody, and Washington yep. Post or the Times. And this was a shocking development for the first time since World War II. There was a government now that was just riddled with, with uh, neo-Nazis clearly neo-Nazi elements and, and, and some of the signs and um, yep. emblems and all of those things confirmed that as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about this profile of this government first before we move into the specifics of your article? Yeah, well, let me, uh, all right, you stop me in different places because I've been just jotting down a couple of different notes as just a general picture of uh, playing off of what you said, okay? So first thing is Ukraine To understand Ukraine, you have to understand it is an extraordinarily divided nation and a diverse nation. U.S. media speak of Ukraine as if it is a single country march in lockstep, Mm -hmm. which would be pretending that America is united in its support of Joe Biden or Donald Trump. I mean, it is it's just nothing can be further from the truth. Mm -hmm. It is a united country. You look at the maps, and it is it is divided by language, it is divided by religion, it is divided by economic ties, which is also super important because Eastern Ukraine is tied or was tied to Russia economically, which impacts the way that people vote. So just like people in Texas have a certain tie to Mexico, and Mexico has to Texas, it impacts decisions. Same thing here, except an even more tight region between eastern Ukraine and Russia, okay? You have a country of 45, or at the time, 45 million people, okay? That was divided. Secondly, the reason why what happened at Maidan in 2013-2014 is a coup is because, as you pointed out, Yanukovych, who was the president at the time, he was not only elected by people in Eastern Europe, the election was legitimate. It was certified by the European Union, among others. That's something you will never, ever hear. He was a legitimately elected president. It's not just the people in eastern Ukraine wanted him president and the rest of the country didn't, and they just said, oh, well, too bad. No, they wanted him president, they voted for him as president, and he got the majority, which is how he became president. So he was a democratically elected leader. Now, he also happened to be a supremely corrupt scumbag. To every metric. Not the first one in the world. Of course, of course. But absolutely. Like like other countries have democratic elected corrupt scumbags. Uh Okay? But that didn't make him any less democratically elected. Mm -hmm. So when the uprising happened, it was a coup because it toppled the democratically elected president. And the reason why 
Eastern Ukraine rose up is because they did it in response to not just the toppling of somebody they like, but somebody who they legitimately elected. It was a negation of the democratic will of the people. So that's number one, okay? Second thing is, as you said, during this uprising, the decision needed to be made between going, tying Ukraine into the EU or continuing its ties to Russia. And economics, the way it would just worked out is that Ukraine was intimately tied to Russia. Mm-hmm. And you can tell the difference. And severing that tie especially would impact people in eastern Ukraine whose industries relied on trade with Russia. So when people say that people in eastern Ukraine are pro-Russian, again, that's not an accurate thing. They weren't pro-Russian so much as they were pro-having a job, and their jobs had to do with Russia. Okay, just like there's plenty of people on the outskirts of Austin, for example, who may work in Austin, they might not necessarily be Austin loyalists, but they have jobs, they have careers, they have economic ties to Austin. Right. So that's the second thing. And you can tell that those ties were certainly strong because Ukraine is now firmly the poorest country in Europe. So everything that Yanukovych's people predicted, which is that if you go towards the EU, you will lose your your economy with Russia, and it will crater the country, happened. So now they're the poorest country in Europe. Mm -hmm. So obviously the decision to not go with the EU was certainly one that was based in reality. Okay, Mm -hmm. And the last thing you have to know as far as the coup is concerned is that in the middle of this coup, as people were rising up against Yanukovych, and by people I mean at the most you would say like maybe like 20% of Ukraine. It was still millions of people. But if you have a country of 45 million, of course you're going to get, you know, a a large amount. American media portrayed this as all of Ukraine rising up against Yanukovych, which is just utter garbage. Mm -hmm. The millions of people who did not want to do this, who wanted no part of it, uh, were just ignored for the camera. They were ignored, and instead they only focused on the people who were rising up against them. And the thing that's just amazing, especially after the 2016 election, is into the midst of this uprising against a democratically elected leader came American politicians, came John McCain, came Senator Chris Murphy, came Victoria Nuland. So can you imagine, I mean, talk about foreign interference. Can you imagine if we had some sort of, or even just like the January 6th uprising? Fine, you had people rise up, okay? Can you imagine if Russia, if Russia sent, like, members of parliament to, like, stand among the protesters and egg them on, to mm-hmm. physically have people who are part of another government come over and stand with the protesters and say, we are with you? Could you imagine what would happen if, if, if a dog catcher from Russia did that? And here we're talking about some of the most powerful people in the world who openly and brazenly went to this country and said, go ahead, participate in this. We're with you. At the same time, I remember John Brennan, who was the CIA chief, went to Ukraine post-coup, and apparently they originally denied that he was there. He had some fake passport or something, I think was reported. But regardless, it speaks to the accuracy of what you're saying, that there was just a huge U.S. presence, not just politically, but these people like John McCain and other very high-ranking positioned politicians and government figures in the United States are seen in photo ops with some of these neo-Nazi-like individuals. 
but I thought exactly. that, but I think the fact that John Brennan, the head of the CIA, went there, you know, that's something usually a station chief w- with the CIA would be responsible for coordinating yeah. and helping the response uh, or advising that government on how to respond, which of course is still an egregious form of meddling. But instead, when you send your number one man there, that's a huge statement. And there was, following his very quick return to the United States, after those meetings, there was a really huge upbeat in the uh, repression in the East. Can you, can you just talk a little bit more, too, about, you know, I know it's not as simple as East against West, but those are, in the East there, these folks that were overwhelmingly supporters of the government that got cooed out, they also, their primary language was Russian, and part of the impetus into the East was to demean these people by and take their language from them as an act of a new government, this, this, this neo-fascist-led government. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. And I'm from Eastern Ukraine. I speak Russian. That's my, my primary language. I have people going back in Ukraine for generations, and they've spoken Russian. So it's these people's native language. It's the language that they've spoken in that region for a very long time. So it's not like they're looking to, like, it's one thing, if you know, you, in New Jersey, for example, you can take your driver's license in, like, 19 different languages or something, okay? So, you know, if New Jersey lets you take your driver's license and ch- test in Chinese, that's New Jersey being courteous to you. It's being nice. But this isn't that question. This is these people demanding the right to use their native language in their country. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. So this is something that it's not a... They were not asking Ukraine to be nice to them. They were demanding. And the situation with Russian and Ukrainian in Ukraine, it's it's really not that difficult. It's like, it's like Canada and French, you know? Mm-hmm. Every few years, the government of Canada goes out of their way to tell Quebec that they love the French language, it is a wonderful and melodic and beautiful language, and that Quebec should continue speaking it. Okay, And every document you will see out of Canada, even if somebody lives in Vancouver, on their, on their document you'll also see French. And the reason they do this is because they know if they do not make Quebec feel like they are comfortable with their language, Quebec will start talking about separating. And if they start pushing, uh, if they start pushing the French language out, suddenly millions of people in Quebec or what, or or whoever is in Quebec is going to start. They're going to be the enemy, and that's mm-hmm. exactly what happened in Eastern Ukraine. A new government came to power in an uprising, and the very first order of business, like literally the first thing they moved to pass, is, is stripping protection from the Russian language mm-hmm. to the half the country that speaks Russian that just lost their elected president, I mean, that is a very strong thing. Uh, you know, you're, again, these people, this is the language that they use. And they were told, we are not interested in having you as equals. Mm-hmm. We're not interested in your language. We're not interested. We are interested in imposing our will on you. Mm-hmm. So that's one element of it, you know, taking away your culture, taking away your language, treating you as in that way as a second-class citizen is one deal. But the thing that was so shocking to me at the time, I remember following the coup, were some of these attacks, particularly the one in Odessa, in which... It was uh, awful. And before I ask you to talk a little bit about that, but there, there were these battalions that, that were connected to the Ukrainian security services, and the ASCOV was one mm-hmm. of them, uh, and there were several other ones. And when they use this language that these were far right, that, that they were nationalists, these were neo-Nazi volunteer battalions, 
And not only did the UN, in a report by the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, speak about the rate of atrocities that went on in mass graves that were later found in, in the Donetsk area, but that the trauma of these groups led to a, a United States effort that no, none of the, the monies would go to these groups. The National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, is a name for each of a series of U.S. federal laws that specify annual budget and expenditures of the U.S. Department of Defense. In the summer of 2015, as the NDAA was making its way through Congress, Representatives John Conyers, Michigan Democrat, and Ted Yoho, Republican of Florida, put forth an amendment that passed unanimously in the House of Representatives that would have ruled out training or arming the notorious Azov Battalion, an openly neo-Nazi and fascist unit that uses symbols of the Nazi SS. But by the time Congress and Obama finished resolving their differences six months later, the only part of that Conyers-Yoho amendment that survived was the prohibition on portable air defense systems, manpads, to Ukraine. Obama signed the omnibus spending bill. Section 9014 of the law allocated $250 million to provide assistance, including training, equipment, lethal weapons of a defensive nature, logistics support, supplies, and services to the military and national security forces of the Ukraine without any exclusions. Obama went forward without the ban on training or equipping the neo-Nazi Azov or similar units being included. And by doing so, we were turning our back on the neo-Nazi nature and elements of the Ukraine government that we were supporting. Let's take a step back first. Talk about the Conyer bill and that it was a unanimous decision, but then six months later when the omnibus bill passed somehow, the teeth, and it was completely missing of these restrictions. Yeah, it was stripped. Yeah, let's talk about uh, uh, let's talk about the the battalions again first, and just explain who they are and what part they played. Okay. Thank you. Can you stop me if you want. You no, need no, to no, redirect. No, sounds good. Uh, if you need to redirect, so presence of neo Nazis during Maidan is something that was a very underreported is a kind way of saying it. Okay. Now, when we're talking about neo Nazis, Lev, before you explicate the neo Nazi profile. In reality, we need to take a quick break for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is the premier community radio station of the nation. We will continue our discussion with our esteemed guest, Lev Golinkin, and his explanation of neo-Nazism in the Ukraine and how it impacts the United States. We'll be back right after this. We hope you will, too.